Hey, it's Chaz Mostert here, and yes, I'm inside your speaker. I'm in here because I have a special message for you from Clayton in Melbourne. If you're a club, state, or national racer on the circuit or on the dirt in Speedway or rallying, you can now tap into the know-how of Walkinshaw Racing Services, and you don't need a supercar to get in the door. The same expertise that's won multiple Bathurst 1000s and V8 Supercar Championships is now available for you to call upon. From bonnet to bumper, WRS can help you with engines, design, paint, machining, fabrication, and so much more for all sorts of makes, models, and categories. Have a chat with Walkinshaw Racing Services and tell them what matters to you. Call now on 1300 WRacing or email services at walkinshawracing.com.au. A Motorsport Podcast Network production. Hello and welcome to the Castrol Motorsport News Podcast. I'm your host, Andrew Van Leeuwen, and here's what's making news this week. The Bathurst 6 Hour has been run and won, and what a weekend it was for Cameron Hill and Thomas Sargent. They took pole for the race, were demoted to the back of the grid for a technical infringement, and then charged through the 67-car field to win anyway. Uh, Tim Slade and Brad Carr finished second, and Shane Smolin, Rob Rubis, and Nick Perkat were third. In the support races, it was two wins from three for Aaron Cameron and TCR Australia. The other win went to Hyundai rookie Bailey Sweeney, and in Trans Am, it was all Nathan Hearn who won all three races. There were some COVID-19 dramas in the lead-up to the weekend with both Shane Van Gisbergen and Fabian Coulthard testing positive to the virus, which meant they didn't make the trip to Bathurst. Uh, Van Gisbergen was meant to drive the Smolin Rubus BMW in the six-hour and a Trans Am car, while Coulthard was set to race the Stan Sport Honda TCR car again. He was replaced by Tim Slade. Erebus Motorsport gave six young drivers some supercars laps last week through its academy program. Jalen Robotham, Jay Hansen, Bailey Sweeney, Reef McCarthy, Cameron McLeod, and Jordan Mickles all drove the Mercador, which is the Mercedes-powered Commodore, at Winton. And the legal battle between David Couchy and Triple Eight is now finished. It's been resolved, although we don't know exactly in which direction or how it actually played out, but it is over. Joining me this week to discuss all that and more is a teammate that I would definitely let do the first stint at the Bathurst Six Hour just so he could get a few laps in before the car went into limp home mode, Stefan Bartholomeus. Stefan, how are you this week, my friend? Did you get some nice uh, Easter eggs? I could imagine you were actually handing the car over knowing it was limping uh, of Brocky style and uh, sending me back out so I had to walk back from uh, the cutting or something like that. But, uh, yes, that's not very uh, Easter spirit, is it? So uh, no. I certainly had a uh, had a great weekend here over in Adelaide just spending some time with the family and like most great weekends, it did involve watching some car racing. There you go. That's uh, It just couldn't be better. I'm actually on holidays myself. I'm in beautiful Bustleton in the southwest of Western Australia, coming to you live from a caravan. So how good is that? Now, let's kick things off with um, with a bit of a chat about the, the six-hour. Um, another absolute BMW fest at the front of the field. Um, and, geez, that M2 that Hill and Sargent were driving uh, was an absolute rocket. It was so fast in, in qualifying. And, you know, I know there was a technical infringement, but I'm not sure a bit of ride height was making that much difference. Um, and, you know, it's not like the thing was pumping out a heap more grunt than it was allowed or something like that. And then in the race, it was just absolutely unstoppable. I guess the question is, and this tends to be how the flow of production car racing is, like how many of those rigs are we going to see on the grid next year? Yeah, on the basis of uh, the weekend, you'd uh, you'd think quite a few unless they uh, change something in the homologation of that car. 
uh, in the end, it was it was a great race as a spectator. It distilled into an awesome battle between Tim Slade in the M3 model BMW and Cameron Hill in that M2. But overall, that M2 was was so quick. Only a failure was really gonna gonna stop it in the in the closing stages there when Cameron was chasing Slady. He uh, they both set their fastest laps of the day, and uh, the M2 was two and a half seconds or thereabouts quicker than the uh, than the M3. So it was amazing, if anything, that uh, Slady held him off for so long um, and Cameron had to uh, pull a pretty bold move up there at Skyline yeah. in order to get it done. But overall, just putting aside the the tech stuff for a second, like to see a couple of young guys in Cameron Hill and, and Tom Sargent drive really well through the day and um, get a win on a relatively big stage, it's an endurance race at Bathurst, was, um, was pretty cool to see. Yeah, it is. And it's kind of, I guess, you know, you, you can't have all pro driver lineups for that event, but you can have two young quick guys in it and uh, and it shows that that can definitely pay off as well. Um, there were some interesting comments from from Timmy Slade. Um, he spoke to Speed Cafe after the race talking about, you know, controlling costs for this race. Uh, and I have to say, even when I was sort of watching the weekend unfold, I was thinking along the same lines. It, it really has just become such an expensive race to try and win now i mean if you want if you want one of those m2s you're going to be paying north of 100k for your donor car and then whatever else you need to spend to make it race ready um you know it's a far cry from when you know your mitsubishi evo or your wrx was a competitive bit of kit for you know the old 12 hour or or whatever um and then you got to think about you know do you need to pay a supercars driver to come along for the weekend and help out and drive the thing and all that sort of stuff so that's not going to be cheap either has it gone a bit too far with these class x and these really sort of you know that these top of the line bmws beating being the the must-have thing and we've seen another step in that with the m2 now is it does it need to be reined back somehow whether it's through a balance of performance system or something like that Stefan? do you think well it's hard to really rein it back when so many people have gone and spent the money on those cars on the basis of it being a $150,000 price ceiling for the donor car. Unfortunately, there are a lot of things inherent in production cars that mean they're more expensive in, in a lot of ways to prepare them for racing than um, yeah. many uh, purpose-built racing cars are. In terms of BOP, it's sort of in an interesting space where um, what does this event want to be? Does it want to sort of be a test of what can the production car do and show which car is better or is it a BOP race? And if you look at um, the way it is now, there's actually three parity mechanisms they've got in place in terms of adjusting boost, adjusting weight and the number of pit stops that have to be done to that specified time. And so if you look at the M2, the M3 and the M4, which um, were the, uh, the front-running cars, all BMWs, they had the same boost, but the M2 is lighter than the other two. So should they have changed that during the weekend? Like the organisers can change the boost level pre-qualifying and they can adjust the weight pre-race, but they decided not to do that. Again, it sort of uh, comes back to a matter of opinion on what the race is trying to be, but ultimately I think they do need to probably even that up between those cars for next year because – the people that have invested in M3s and M4s aren't um, going to want to park those and go and spend a whole heap more money 
on getting the M2. Like it's always going to go in waves, but they have to apply some sense to these things as well. If anything, it's a shame that there's not a Audi RS3 and an AMG C63 in there mixing it with the BMWs because we're talking about trying to even cars up, but they're all BMWs at the end of the day. Yeah. So, yeah, um, yeah I guess like in, in the older, older days, we saw a lot more like manufacturer involvement, if not dealers running cars. So they're mm-hmm. going to run what they sell. But here, there are a few of those, but there's more of the wealthy amateurs that are just wanting to run whatever's fastest. So unless they do shape the rules a little bit, it becomes very costly to keep up with whatever's the the latest gun thing. Yeah, absolutely. And I guess that, you know, as much as I I agree they need some something to try and at least make sure we have a, a group of cars at the front that are all competitive and not one that's two seconds lap faster. I mean, the proof is still in the pudding in terms of the popularity of the race. I mean, we didn't quite get our record field because there was a few cars that dropped out um, before the race, but still getting a lot of entries. 67 cars is a lot of cars to have on the grid, and it does make for uh, for quite a spectacle. I actually find the spectacle, the six-hour, kind of fascinating. I like it's. It's it's almost a, I find it a bit weird to watch. The cars aren't sort of spectacular to watch driving around, but there's something intriguing about you know the 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 field spread and just even just the way that these cars break down. We sort of know how racing cars break down, but these cars just break down a totally different thing. And it's I guess you know what I find interesting is that once upon a time, if you wanted to turn a road car into a racing car, it was all about you know how can I make this thing make more horsepower? I've got to put bigger brakes on it and this and that. Now, you know, these these cars, these BMWs make an immense amount of power and they have huge brakes. The challenge is talking the ECU into playing ball <laughs> all day and not at some point assuming you're having a massive shunt and just going into limp home mode. Um, it, it's 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 sort of fascinating to watch this race and think, you know, at, at any point this car could just want to shut down. It's weird, right? Yeah, that's the other big issue um, with the production car racing. I mean, to have the... The Marcus Ambrose, George Medici Mustang was arguably the hero entry in that whole huge 80-strong entry list there was, and it didn't even make the event because of electronic issues. And then you look at a few of those key BMWs with, you know, the one with Anton Di Pasquale in it, the one with Will Davison in it. Mm -hmm. These Having those guys, like, does um, increased interest in the event but then for those cars to be out of the running within a couple of minutes because of, um, yeah, some electronic issues is uh, not really good for anyone. But I don't know how they how they can solve that. There's a fair bit of freedom in the rules with um, being able to change wiring and electronic modules and everything like that. But at some point, the, the new stuff needs to talk to the factory stuff and, and vice versa. And it just seems that the production cars these days are so complex electronically that um, you're damned if you do and damned if you don't with all that stuff. And you look at a team like Beric Linton's team, experienced, they've run these cars before and you get to the race and they were caught out by new things going wrong that they hadn't encountered before. So yeah. I think that's just a real random variable for the, for the viewer at least that, um, yeah, I don't think they're going to really iron out. No, that's the thing. You, you, it feels like such a simple fix. Just tell the ECU that it's fine. We're doing a motor race. Just keep going. But no one seemed to have <laughs> properly cracked it to the point where you can be certain it's not going to happen. And like you said, it was sort of the thing that pops up in the race that it wouldn't pop up at other points in the weekend or or whatever. It is sort of it's a it's just a I don't know. It, it kind of adds something fascinating to the race. And I guess like this is the, of our three Bathurst enduros, this is the shortest one. 
but it's almost the toughest one because of the fact you're trying to talk a road car into doing something that it doesn't really want to do for six straight hours. Um, what else caught your eye over the weekend? Seems like the uh, talking about balance of performance, those Peugeot's TCR cars are pretty quick. It sounds like with those production cars, it needs uh, you just need to be sh- able to shout at the ECU and say, uh, it's oh. called a motor race. We're going motor racing. Yeah, um, it, it needs a Massey setting to yeah. uh, sort all that out. I but like yeah, it. like TCR is a bit BOP um, conversation as well. Um, but overall, it was another, yeah, topsy-turvy sort of entertaining weekend. Um, we talked last time about uh, sort of needing a round result to, to distill it all. Um, and Aaron Cameron ended up top scoring the weekend. No surprise because he won two races from uh, Bailey Sweeney and James Moffat. Yep. Um, so Josh Buchan was fourth on points. Like the Hyundai's were pretty good as well. Yeah. Um, yeah. And to see Sweeney like another new winner, that was a pretty cool result there. So um, yeah, dominant dominant win as well. Drove the lots off. of uh, yeah, lots of mixed up results. But Tony D'Alberto's really uh, really proving he's knowing how to string a season together. I mean, I don't think he finished in the top five in any race on the weekend, and he extended his points lead. So um, yeah, we're only three rounds down out of seven, but. Um, He's still looking pretty strong out of a weekend that the Honda really wasn't wasn't quick enough. Absolutely. Uh, let's take a bit of a look at the 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 uh, gears and fabs COVID stuff in the lead up to Bathurst. It sort of seems like there was a bit of uh, there was a bit of COVID that came out of uh, the AGP. A few people picked up the lurgy there. I mean. Um, firstly, it's such an SVG thing to do to get COVID smack bang in between supercars rounds. I'm sure he was disappointed not to race in the six hour, but um, it's a hell of a lot better than missing the Perth supercars round, um, for example. But um, I, I just sort of feel like this 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 is um, this shows us that at some point a supercars driver is going to miss a supercars round because they 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 test positive to COVID nineteen. It just has. A sense of being inevitable about it. Um, I know we've got the drop round rule to sort of ease the pain to some extent, um, and I'm pretty sure that will come into play at some point. But I guess, you know, even if you take it away from the lens of missing a race, like supercars has really pushed this, you know, let's open up the paddock again. Drivers are back doing autograph sessions. The access is back. And it's always been one of the great things about supercars. So I understand why they want access to the drivers to be what it is but Stefan are we are we putting these guys at, at too much risk of actually catching the virus because forget about you know okay so if you can if you catch it at a race meeting it might not you know you might not miss a race meeting because the timing is going to be in your favor but this is still a deadly virus and something that I'm pretty sure people particularly professional athletes want to avoid do we maybe need to rethink the access to drivers, given the fact that we are still actively engaged in a pandemic? It's a difficult one to um, really comment too much on, but I feel like if if there is um, discomfort among the driver group about the interactions they're required to have during a race weekend, then it's a conversation that, that needs to be had with supercars for sure. Um yeah, as you say, the, the big gaps between rounds uh, means it's not, say, like F1, where if you, you get it one weekend, you're probably going to miss the next race. Yeah. Um, so if anything, that um, the whole are you going to miss a race is more determined by what you do in in between in, in yeah, your own time sure. um, and all the commitments that the teams can control and, and the drivers can control a bit better. 
But um, in saying that, if you get COVID at an event, then um, even taking aside any health effects, which is uh, the most important part, but um, yeah, being taken out of whatever the rest of your world looks like for the next uh, week or so isn't uh, isn't great either because drivers have other commitments outside the races. So yeah, it's uh, it's something that um, all sports are having to deal with in one way or another, and supercars is um, is part of that. Obviously, the next um, event is in Western Australia, so it'll be interesting to see how all the external off-track elements of that of that event are handled, both by supercars and the local authorities there too. Yeah, it will be. Yeah, I mean, they are two separate issues, catching COVID at an event and catching COVID in between an event. And I guess the the risk for the in-between an event where you could potentially miss an event, you know, and, and we saw it, you look at Sebastian Vettel, you know, missing races and then sort of it's very hard to come back, you know. It's worse earlier in the season, obviously, um, when other guys have got that running that you don't. But, you know, this is if – if it happens to a footy player or something, then the game continues. You know, the team carries on. The team has still got a shot to go out there and win. But this is such an individual sport, um, and I think it is going to be a factor at some point this season. I just feel like we'd sort of – we haven't we haven't seen it happen, and now we are seeing it happen. Um and there are some. There were more examples that came out of the Grand Prix, you know. And then you're, you're dealing with crew members and stuff like. Um, it is. Uh, I think it is going to be a factor as we um, as we head on into the season, and it will be something we'll be discussing again at some point. Every lap in under a minute. Every move made to matter. Every decision impacting the outcome of the race. Supercars in Perth. Every second matters. Bosch Power Tools Perth Super Sprint, May 17 to 19. Book now at Ticketek. Supercars. Unforgettable. All right, let's take a look at what's happening around the world. There was plenty of drama at NASCAR's Bristol Dirt Race with Chase Briscoe spinning leader Tyler Reddick at the very last corner, Kyle Busch swept through to inherit the win. Uh, Japan's Super GT Series has confirmed that it will use carbon-neutral fuel for its 2023 season. Uh, German company Holtemann Karls will supply the second-generation biomass fuel as part of a three-year deal. Um, and Alpine boss Laurent Rossi says he's open to loaning young Aussie Oscar Piastri to a rival Formula One team next season as long as a return to Alpine in the future is part of the deal. Stefan, I wanted to get your thoughts on on Piastri. We didn't have much of a chance to discuss this in last week's pod when we were wrapping up all the AGP stuff, but it was quite remarkable how present he was across the AGP weekend. I mean, there was a cardboard cutout of him at the Alpine hospitality in the F1 paddock. Um, there were all he basically did all the press commitments and all, and everything that comes with um, being a race car driver, except driving a race car uh, on the weekend. The team actually did. Uh, consider sticking him in the car uh, for FP1, which they they can do, but just being a new layout, being so early in the season, the cars still being so new, they just couldn't but they couldn't afford to take either of the race drivers um, out of the car for that session. But you know they they could sort of they considered it just based on how much of a buzz that would have actually created. Um, what did you make of it all, Stefan? There was a lot of Oscar going on across the AGP weekend. Yeah, it feels like an odd situation. Obviously, he's not uh, not the first driver to be in this general sort of place, but um, 
especially at Albert Park, um, the home race, like as you say, he was doing all what the drivers would probably refer to as uh, the bad parts of being a driver with the travel and the media and obviously he's doing all the training and stuff but he's not getting in the car. Um, for me, the peak of the hype around Oscar through the weekend was there was a bit of a pre-race sort of crowd rev up thing going on at the track and, you know, there's an MC yelling out, do we have any Piastri fans here? And I'm sort of like going, these people know that he's not racing, right? Like, yeah. <laughs> it was just, that was that was peak of the sort of weirdness. But, um, yeah, hopefully he can do some FP1 through the year. That would be, uh, that'd be great. Yeah, that's that's definitely. I think that will definitely happen. Um, I was actually in a media roundtable with Laurent Rossi talking about Oscar, and uh, let me tell you, he he loves the kid, uh, and he he's quite happy to sit there and say that Oscar's will be a world champion one day. Someone asked him about Jack Doohan, for example, and he basically said, "Don't worry about anyone else in the Alpine Academy. Nobody's going to jump Oscar in the queue. He's next. He's the guy we're working on." Um, the the setup. The way they've set up this reserve driver role is that it's, you know, he's saying it's bigger and better than anything they've ever done or that any team has probably done. He's going to be doing every bit of testing, every bit of sim work, sitting in on, on data, sitting in on data um, sessions during race weekends and debriefs with the uh, with the race drivers. The issue that the team has got is that Esteban Ocon is just starting a new three-year deal. Um, so the only way that an Alpine seat comes into play next season is if Alonso is shuffled aside. And he's in pretty good form and saying that he wants to carry on. Um, so, you know, the team has to acknowledge that it may not have space for Oscar in 2023. I mean, as good as this reserve driver role may be, you know, Surely, Stefan, it's not good for the team or for Oscar if he spends two seasons on the sidelines. They're going to have to do something with him, right? Yeah, you wouldn't like to see him spend two seasons out, that's for sure. And I guess that the other part of this, like it's um, it's more important than ever really to have a um, have a reserve driver that's absolutely ready to go because of all the things we were talking about before with mm. um, with COVID. Yeah, um, the chances of having to to slot in at the last minute are a lot higher than they've traditionally been. So there's some sense in in having him right in the mix as much as they can from that perspective as well. But I do feel like they've um, they've sort of boxed themselves in potentially unnecessarily with this three year deal with Esteban Ocon. Uh, I, I, the French factors obviously uh, plays a role in that, and I'm not sure whether they're afraid of losing him somewhere else, whether there was interest there that we don't really know about. But um, as it stands, like I don't think um, they'd be kicking Fernando Alonso out, especially when he's um, outperforming Ocon uh, yeah. more often than not, um, regardless of being two-time world champion or not and all the marketing benefits that come with having Fernando. He's um, doing the job on the track. So, um, And, yeah, if he's competitive, he's probably wanna going to want to keep going as well. So... They're in a real uh, real pickle here with what they do with Oscar, and it's unfortunate that Renault don't have any customer teams with their power plants um, at the moment. Um, yeah, in terms of being able to loan him out to a customer and then bring him back into the factory fold when, uh, when Fernando is finished would be great, but um, there's no obvious link there. Can you see any other team um, as being an obvious candidate to to take him, it's it's always awkward when you're trying to loan someone out, but bring like having having that stipulation that you want to bring him back. 
Yeah, I think um, uh, Rossi actually touched on that. You know, he was asked about that. What? How do you do a loan deal if you don't have a power unit deal with another team? And he said, well, look, we're open to doing a power unit deal with another team. Obviously, that that Renault motor wasn't really the pick of the bunch for quite a long time. They've had to do a lot of work to get it up to speed. They reckon they're pretty close now. So he said, we've probably got a PU that, that, that other teams might be interested in taking. But he also said, I'm open to collaborating with teams that aren't customers as well because I just think they're going to have to do something with Oscar. I just can't see how you can't have him on this amazing run of form, winning championship after championship, and then go, okay, you're going to do nothing for the next two years. A year you get away with, but this guy's got to be racing. Um, so I think – and they understand that, and I, so I think they're fairly open to going and doing a deal anywhere that's just going to get him in a car. All they want is to make sure that he's going to come back at some point because, like I say, they reckon he's going to win championships, and they want him to come back and win championships with them. So it's it was quite um, – it was quite incredible to see how passionate he is about Oscar. He talked about how smart he is and how um, he, he, you know, he's become the favourite because of the questions he asked about the business and about the race team and just the way he thinks about things. And yeah, there's definitely uh, there's a big old man crush going on with Laurent Rossi and Oscar Piastri. So um, anyway, we'll wait and see where he ends up next year. What will be really cool when he does race at the Australian Grand Prix is that, you know, like in the era of the Melbourne Grand Prix, we've had Aussie drivers, you know, but we had Mark Webber from Queanbeyan and we had Daniel Ricciardo from Perth, which couldn't be further away from Melbourne if it tried. You know, Oscar is a Melbourne boy. He's, he's from Bayside, Melbourne. He grew up right near Albert Park. So I think that's going to be a pretty special moment when he's uh, when he's finally sitting on that grid. And he's going to be the absolute world champion media performer, um, knowing how to answer all the questions, considering that's uh, so much a uh, big part of his role at the moment. Exactly right. All right, let's stick our hand in the Castro mailbag and see what comes out. This week, we have another question from champion question asker David Steinveder, my favorite pronunciation of his name. Um, he asked if, uh, you know, watching how good this Trans Am racing has been recently, are supercars worried that more drivers might uh, jump ship and want to go and race one of those things? Now, this is kind of an interesting one because there was – a fair bit of chatter around the paddock at the Grand Prix about supercars not necessarily being thrilled about Shane Van Gisbergen uh, jumping in a Trans Am car, well, what he was meant to do at the Bathurst six-hour weekend. There was a bit of back and forth and will it happen, won't it happen. Um, there were some comments from uh, Jamie Winkup, I think, in auto action saying, oh, I'm, you know, I, I, I don't have a problem with it. He's free to do it as long as it's not going to cause any dramas, but I'm also not going to let it. Uh, I'm not going to go to war with supercars over it. So, yeah, it seems like there was a little bit of tension there about about that happening. Uh, what did you make of all that, Stefan? It's such a shame that this is even a conversation, to be honest. Like, yeah, especially in this era of uh, this ARG uh, partial ownership of supercars. Um, mm. Yeah, we, we thought we were um, better than this stuff now, to be quite honest. Um, clearly, there's something about the fact that there's uh, Mustang and Camaro racing each other in Trans Am already and supercars are fumbling and bumbling their way through their Gen 3 program trying to get those cars on track that uh, made this issue more sensitive than, say, Shane and those other guys planning to do the six-hour production car race on the same weekend. Um, but, yeah, it's also a shame that we didn't get to see the actual resolution of this playing out. Seemingly, Shane was going to drive the Trans Am if not for um, the COVID-19 infection. 
but we didn't actually get to see yeah. firmly whether he was going to be able to do it. So the shame of it, um, uh, putting aside the politics, was um, it would have been awesome to see Shane in the Trans Am car to give a bit of a test of how good Nathan Hearn really is going. Um, he's the he's the class of that field at the moment, and as good as your your Tim Tim Brook and, and Owen Kelly and those guys are, um, it would have been great to really benchmark uh, a young fast guy in Nathan against uh, against Shane. But um, yeah, hopefully we'll see Shane um, later in the season once uh, once Trans Am's back on track. All right, let's uh, let's get stuck into some Castrol stars of the week, Stefan. This week, I'm going to give my vote to Bailey Sweeney. Um, he had he has his first supercars test and then puts in some epic drives in the Hyundai TCR car all in one week. That's pretty cool. That race two win was complete dominance, and some of his passing in Sunday's race was uh, was great as well. So it's it's always fun to see new talent come through and 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 show that they can actually. Uh, they can make it work on a fairly big stage. So good on Bailey, and he's my star of the week. Who have you got? Well, I like to see you giving a giving a young star a shout out there, but I've gone with an established star for my Castrol star of the week, Nick Perkat, partly for jumping in at the last minute as a sub for Shane Van Gisbergen in the Bathurst Six Hour, but mainly for his narrow escape in the closing stages of the race at the top of the mountain. If you haven't seen it, go and find the video on socials. Um, he, he came up through the blind Reed Park to find a Volkswagen directly on the race line, pretty much stationary, and somehow threaded this BMW between the uh, the Volkswagen and the concrete wall. It was an amazing bit of reflex reaction from Nick and uh, certainly one of the enduring memories from Sunday's race. Yep, it was a pretty epic moment. That's a very good star of the week. Well, that's it for this week. Remember to like, subscribe, and review our work wherever you listen to your podcast, and we'll be back next week with more Castrol Motorsport news. Hey, it's Chaz Mostert here, and yes, I'm inside your speaker. I'm in here because I have a special message for you from Clayton in Melbourne. If you're a club, state or national racer on the circuit or on the dirt in Speedway or rallying, you can now tap into the know-how of Walkinshaw Racing Services and you don't need a supercar to get in the door. The same expertise that's won multiple Bathurst 1000s and V8 Supercar Championships is now available for you to call upon. From bonnet to bumper, WRS can help you with engines, design, paint, machining, fabrication and so much more for all sorts of makes, models and categories. Have a chat with Walkinshaw Racing Services and tell them what matters to you. Call now on 1300 W Racing or email services at walkinshawracing.com.au.